The Incomparable. Number 166. November 2013. Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and I hope we haven't disappointed you. Have you said to yourself, you know, about 160 episodes of The Incomparable? I stopped listening after like 100 because it, it just, you know, it didn't work for me anymore. Well, I'm glad you somehow t- tuned into this episode after we disappointed you because that is the topic of this episode disappointments, I think most particularly in books. We're going to be talking about authors and series that have disappointed us in some way, that have made us say, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk away, and, and why we would, we, why we would say those things. And I have a topical reference that I'm going to drop that's the uh, other part of this subject. But before we get there, I'm going to introduce my panel of lovely people who are not bitter at all and have no grievances to air tonight. Okay, maybe a few. Uh, first off, the the sunshine of my life, Mr. Happy himself, it's Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. Uh, hello, Jason. <laughs> well, man, I'm, I'm flying high already. I, I feel uncomfortable all of a sudden. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Dan Morin is also here. Dan Morin is like my security blanket. He's on every podcast so that, that I know it's a podcast. Hi, Dan. I'm the Linus of this, I guess. No, you're not Linus. You're, I'm the you're, Linus. You're the, you're the blanket. blanket. That's right. Get it right, Dan. So confusing. I'm more of a wet blanket. Fair uh, hi, Jason. Hi, David Lore is also here. Hi, David. I, I'm Snoopy, so I'll be very quiet tonight. Fair enough. Now, this is not the Peanuts episode, though. I just, oh. want, to, I just oh. want to be clear about that. And Lisa Schmeiser is here, too. Hi, Lisa. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Arg! Slow clap. <laughs> well played, Ms. Schmeiser. Well played. Maybe this is the Peanuts episode. So, someone had to be the adult, so yeah. Good grief. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, it's Lisa, of course. Now we all go cook, kick a football. It's great. No, we don't. We try to kick a football, Dan. I got tired of kicking the football after about the seventh time. Yeah. I gave up on it. Yeah. All right, so. I want to start with talking about Orson Scott Card only because Ender's Game is coming out. And every Mm -hmm. time I bring up Orson Scott Card, people give me various reactions. One of them is that uh, they don't like, you know, he's outspoken about uh, he donated money to to Prop 8 in California. He's a a member of the Mormon Church, but he's also been outspoken in lots of ways against sort of uh, gay rights. And a lot of people are really down on him for that, and they want to boycott the movie, and they want to boycott his books. I've also gotten an undercurrent from a lot of people, which is just like, I loved Ender's Game and maybe Speaker for the Dead. And then he just kept writing, you know, he wrote like a whole other trilogy of books set in that universe. Quadrology, Jason. Yeah. Quadrology. Diminishing (laughs) returns. And then he wrote, he wrote some other series that people dropped out. So, so I, I I wanted to start with him, not only because like I said, Ender's Game is coming out and I just reread Ender's Game. I mean, really for the first time since I read it in whenever, 1990, when I read it for the first time. And I've read a dozen of his books probably. And, uh, you know, I, I don't... I mean, people give up on writers and give up on on series for all sorts of different reasons. With with Card, it, it's more complicated because who the guy is, as opposed to just the quality of the work over time. Um, but in some ways, I, I I think that's just as valid that that our our ideas of who this person is, who you know you're taking this journey with, who's the the writer that you're placing yourself in in their hands. You know that 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 can be relevant too. It's not just. Uh, 
not knowing anything about the writer and just judging them on, on the page. So um, I just wanted to start by mentioning him and saying that I read Ender's Game and you know what? I really liked it I, when I reread it. I, I, I think it's I think it's a fascinating, interesting, weird, really weird, but good, uh, good book. And um, in some ways, I think it's a real shame that all of the stuff that Orson Scott Card has done have turned so many people off uh, on him since then. You know, rightly or wrongly, I'm not even saying that just because, you know, I think that that work and actually Speaker for the Dead were were pretty good. And and the movie looks interesting, although they've they've definitely sci-fied it up a lot. Um, uh, so I don't know if you guys have read uh, read Card and what your takes on on Ender's Game and on Card in general are, but I thought we'd start there. Lisa, what do you think? The selfish part of my brain always wonders if there's a way for me to read these authors in such a way where they'll never benefit financially from my attention. <laughs> That's right. Use books. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, because um, I have... Library. Well, library. Yeah, library mostly. I'm still in... Uh, I'm still kind of trying to unpack it and tease it because this goes beyond science fiction fandom. For example, um, I have deeply conflicted feelings about enjoying Michael Jackson's music as much as I do, given uh, what has come out about his behavior. Um, I'm really uneasy about ever sitting down and paying attention to a Roman Polanski film for, for much of the same reason. And there is that really big question. Um, can you separate an artist from their work or should you even want to? Uh, and uh, the only answer I've been able to come to with that is that it helps to know where the artist is coming from or what might be driving their work. But at the same time, it's a two-way relationship. So you can choose to take things from it that they may not have intended for you to. Uh, the thing that I get out of Speaker for the Dead, for example, is the concept of... Um, repent you know, it, a, a lot of speaker of the dead is about the concept of repentance and oh, the yeah. right and the right way to do intensely moral things and the wrong way to do intensely moral things and i think in a sort of weird funhouse way it's actually come back onto card where he has these convictions that a lot of people are going to find repellent but and but you know he he is acting those on those convictions and uh whether or not you think it's wrong it's up to you but I almost think that that's a separate conversation from whether or not you should read Orson Scott Card or 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 engage in his work. Um, I think I think you kind of have to take the work and the the creator for it on a very on, on a case by case basis. David, what do you think? Can we separate the art from the artist? Should we? I I was just going to say Lisa's exactly right. It's for me, it's a case by case thing. You know, I can. Look at Card. You know, I've never read Ender's Game. I've I've read exactly one Orson Scott Orson Scott Card book, and that was The Abyss. And partly that was because I was interested in the movie, didn't see the movie, but went, hey, a real science fiction author did this. A name science fiction author did the book. So I went, all right, you know, I'll read it. And it was good, you know, it was fine. Um, but he's, you know, he's working from Cameron's script. And so then I thought, well, you know, what else has he written? Well, I've heard of this, never heard of this. But I, you know, I'd kind of burnt out on sci-fi at the time. And by the time I came back to sci-fi, I knew much more about him and went, yeah, I don't really need to read his stuff. Huh. Um, but then there, I mean, there are other artists and, you know, like Michael Jackson. Uh, it's, it is hard now for me to listen to him. But even in the midst of when he was alive and on, on trial and all those things, it was still, there was, 
there was a thing of, well, it's still good music, you know? Well, I, I, when I go to art galleries and I see these art paintings by these amazing artists, I mean, I, I went to the uh, Van Gogh exhibit in the Rijksmuseum in, in, um, uh. the, in Amsterdam. And oh my God, what he did to his brother Theo. The, the, and the, <laughs> well, you know, yeah. you talk about any of those, I mean, or, 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 or Picasso and, but, but Van Gogh is a good example. It's like mm-hmm. brilliant artist, amazingly just a, amazing mm-hmm. artist. But you know, he was, and he had, he had mental illness and he was miserable to the people around him. And, you know, at, at some point, I don't know, do they have to be dead and gone before you can finally <laughs> accept that the art is what it is and it doesn't really matter? Is it, is it, is it just that they're out there and alive and benefiting from your patronage or or is it more insidious than that? And you have to think that, you know, every time you look at a Van Gogh painting, are you are you thinking about, you know, this may be pretty, but it's also devastating mental illness and it destroyed his family and his relationships with other people. I, I don't know. I think it depends on why you're engaging with the art. I mean, if you're engaging with the art because you're hoping to use it to build a better sense of who you are and what yourself is, like you're expecting the art to help you clarify your moral or intellectual framework, or you're looking for it to to reaffirm or flesh out who you think you are, then yeah, maybe it does matter why this person created what they created because you're using that to build your own value system. But um, if you are looking at it because of its perceived literary or artistic value, in other words, you're like, I want this to try and open my mind and, and provide me insight into the, the human condition or the world at large outside of outside of the confines of my head. I, I, I need I, I'm, I'm searching for a way to look at the world or a way to reframe the way I look at the world because I, I can't just keep looking at things in the same way. Then you could argue that it doesn't matter what the person is like who makes the art what matters is how your what matters is how you perceive it and what and what you take away what pers- how your perspective has shifted and what you're taking away from that because if you go because the thing is is if you go through life thinking oh the human cost like you'll never be able to step into any cathedral in Europe because then you're thinking oh my god generation right. upon generation of serfs that that lived right. in mud yep. and crap and all they did was was spend their entire life carving friezes it's, it's horrifying you can look at it like that, and there is something to be said for recognizing the, the, the human effort. Or if you, for example, tour Monticello in Virginia, you can admire how beautifully it's laid out, and you can take a look at, at what Thomas Jefferson made, and then you can remember this is a guy who mortgaged his slaves and refused to free them upon his debt because he managed his estate so poorly. And the, the lessons you take away from that just depend on, on what you're looking for, I think. Right. I mean, it's it's funny you mentioned Van Gogh because a couple of years ago I wrote a play about Van Gogh. And so I, I read way too many of his letters. And, you know, it, it's interesting because, you know, at the time, the rest of the art world looked at him and went, you can't paint. What the hell is that? You know, they, they just rejected it outright as being art. It was like, that's not even worth being in the same conversation as Gauguin and, you know, all these... Uh, impressionists and Cezanne and, you know, and um, so, I mean, to, to me, his, his story is really tragic. I don't look at his art and worry about his life because er- everything about his life was tragic because of the mental illness and, and because of the way people were reacting to him. But, you know, someone who is intentionally going out and harming others or is espousing beliefs that are exclusionary to others you know to, to me it's that's more of an intentional 
thing on their part. And so it's harder for me to look at their art and separate that out. It's like, okay, what are you trying to say with the art that you're making? Are you trying to send a message or are you truly, you know, objective and separate from the artwork, the art, you know, the, the book or the movie or the music or whatever it is? I don't know. Interesting, you know. interesting distinction of, uh, you know, whether it's in their lives or whether they're actually trying to use their art to send a, a message. And is that message uh, questionable? Dan and Scott, you have been silent. I, <laughs> I consider you, I find you guilty. I was waiting quietly. For yes, Dan, time. what do you think? Well, I think Lisa hit the nail on the head with this sort of, what, what are you trying to do with this? And I mean, there's a value to art that has questionable uh, motivations associated with it. I mean... I'm not suggesting everybody go out and read Mein Kampf, but like there's an argument that that's a valuable thing to read just in the terms of like from a historical perspective or from a, you know, uh, incisive, you know, looking at what is what goes into the construction of a of a work like this or, you know, the films of Lenny Reifenstahl, whatever you want to uh, sort of attribute. There's plenty of art that has been made. But, with but t- enough about Scott's favorites. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I I also had a Nazi reference that I was going to make, so I ah, I'll see. I beat you to the, beat you to the Nazis. <laughs> I'm I'm storing one up too. That's called Godwin's race. Uh, yeah, <laughs> first one to the Nazis. <laughs> Wait, that's terrible. First one the Nazis loses. I, um, yeah, I I don't know with Card. It's interesting because I obviously I read him at. I don't know, 13 or 14 or something before I had any idea of who he was as a person. I don't think I found that out for years afterwards. Uh, and I stopped reading the first series because I just got, I thought it was dull. Like I read Ender's Game. I loved Ender's Game. That's like to my mind, one of the first examples I can sort of remember of like the twist ending, you know, and like mm-hmm. and being surprised by an ending. But I went on to read Speaker for the Dead, and I'm like, this isn't like Ender's Game. This is terrible. <laughs> and I never went on to the last two books in that series because I just didn't I didn't really care for Speaker for the Dead. I did, however, read that entire second series of Ender's books. Um, right, the, sh- the Bean Ender's books, right? The, yeah, the, the Shadow. shadow um, the Shadow. Uh, well, and, and basically I, I my... thought Alec Baldwin was a strange choice to play Bean. But <laughs> uh, in my mind, like those always sort of slotted in somewhere below Ender's Game, but someone above, uh, somewhere above maybe the rest of the original Ender's Game trilogy, even though I didn't read all of it. Um, I, I just, I, I, they're not great, but I found, I found it sort of like entertaining in the same way that you might read like a Tom Clancy novel. Um, you know, and, and to me that's, you know, it had a value in that. I mean, Tom Clancy's not even a bad point himself. Like, you know, there are plenty of writers who are, you don't politically agree with, I mean, which is, uh, you know, maybe a step as not as serious from like someone who's actively espousing beliefs that are, that are hateful. Right. But I think there's a lot of there You certainly read a lot of writers whom you would disagree with on many issues. Um, and so the question becomes, where do you draw that line? You can't say, I'm not going to read anything that, you know, by anybody who doesn't agree with me, because <laughs> you're not only doing, you're doing yourself a disservice, among other things, right? You're not exposing yourself to other ideas, whether they be awful ideas or not. We're not saying they have any merit to them. But, you know, to a certain extent, it's not good to wall yourself off, because in many ways, that's what those people are doing, right? You know, if you're, if you're espousing beliefs that, are, beliefs that are openly hateful, and you're rejecting these other things out of hand, you're, you're in some ways no better than them if you're just saying, I'm only going to read things that I agree with, or, or authors who, whose uh, perspectives I agree with. So I, I think, for me, I try really hard to divorce uh, the author. I mean, it's always going to inform it to a certain extent, but I'd rather judge the work on the merits of the work 
So that way, when I watch like a Michael Bay movie, I can be like, this is awful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I'm not saying that because I disagree with Michael Bay, um, but rather because I think this is bad. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, to me, that's where it really comes down to is uh, I, I think it's worth knowing of, you know, the author's opinion, but uh, and, and perhaps letting that color your analysis of it potentially. But I don't think we should necessarily say we're going to boycott everything that we don't agree with because you know that that does sort of head down that weird road of of you know well-intentioned fascism i guess <laughs> how far how far does that go i mean that that's uh, the point i've always made about any boycott is at some point where where do you draw that line because you could draw right. that line in all sorts of ridiculous places there are people who are like i i heard you say there's some people we work with dan who i i heard you say something uh, bad about this political group that i like and therefore i'm never going to read your stuff again and it's like okay i guess you could do whatever you want but at, at some point <laughs> Uh, it's just ridiculous, and you're right. You, you, you know, you sh- we should be tolerant at least to a point of of people who've got different right. views than us. I, I understand that at some point it, it crosses a line, and that line is very is very hazy. Yeah, you could choose not to read things that you really like, make you, I mean, uh, make you uncomfortable, or you, that you just don't like. I mean, I think that's that's perfectly valid. Um, you know, and 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 the, the interesting thing is always to me like there are plenty of books in which there are thing content that people find directly objectionable yeah. like for example i don't know you know i, I know very little about like stig larson uh, how he was as a person but i know plenty of people who wouldn't read his books because they thought that it was just abhorrent the kind of stuff that he detailed in yeah there. the level of detail of uh, the computers that are used by the characters in those books is crazy <laughs> oh, it's abhorrent crazy offensive <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Scott, I know you have a very detailed rubric that you use when determining what books you're going to read and whether the authors can pass your strict <laughs> ideological tests, right? Uh, well, no, I, I go about, uh, judging authors much like I go about judging people. I assume <laughs> everyone is awful because, you know, the more you find out about someone, the less you like them generally. <laughs> it's been my experience. There's a Raymond Chandler quote, if you like the book, don't meet the author. Exactly. So yeah, I don't. Yeah, I, I don't. That. I don't want to know anything about the authors that I'm reading about because invariably I will find out. Like some book that I love is written by some giant racist who hates everybody, uh, and then that will just ruin the book for me. You're against giants. I was really <laughs> devastated when I found out that Marion Zimmer Bradley had been married to a pederast and defended him for years. I, I was very sad about the whole uh, Laurie Ingalls Wilder. And how she's a raging libertarian. Yeah. Oh, God, I was talking to my parents about that the other day, and I still now I just feel ashamed. And yeah, you don't want to know about it. <laughs> mm. it it's just like too much information. You're right, Scott. It, it's, um, I, I would recommend that people not interact with authors whose books they treasure <laughs> on Twitter. Yes. No, 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 no. Uh, that is good advice. You might say something negative about a well-known sci-fi writer whose also books in a series that kind of didn't go as well <laughs> later on. And Not then it, it, then you interact with him and discover that he's kind of a mean jerk. Mm. It happens. Which is a pity because I, I, I like one of his books very much. <laughs> I, I do too. Yeah. I do too. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's like, let's just keep those separate. I can't. I, I mean, I don't think anyone can go through life without separating the author from their or the artist from their work in some degree or another because yeah. awful people make beautiful things. Mm-hmm. It just happens. And you can appreciate the beautiful thing without uh, agreeing with what the awful person does. 
and and vice versa, right? So I mean, so sure, I don't agree with Orson Scott Card's views on many things, uh, but I also think he wrote a fantastic book that people should read. Uh, I don't know if the movie will be any good, but yeah. I'm not going to not see it because I don't agree with what uh, Orson Scott Card thinks. Like, he already got paid. He's he's probably got yeah. very little in the in the uh, royalties beyond the option for the book. So you're not actually right. financially harming him by not going and seeing it. Other right. Than- he's already been paid. <laughs> I once went to see Orson Scott Card talk, and people should be happy to know that he said. He is unhappy writing science fiction, and he wants to direct plays. So he's huh. just writing these books uh, to, to pay cash the bills. it in. So, yeah. all right, let's take a minute away from disappointment to talk about our first sponsor. So we've turned that disappointment into excitement over a very cool sponsor. It's Warby Parker. They are the rebels of quality eyewear. They make really cool vintage-inspired eyeglasses, uh, regular glasses, and sunglasses. Warby Parker believes that glasses should not cost as much as an iPhone, as a brand new iPhone. Their prescription glasses start at $95. That includes the prescription lenses. Their super lightweight titanium collection starts at only $145, including the lenses. Every pair you get from Warby Parker has anti-reflective and anti-glare coating. No additional cost. They don't charge you another 100 bucks for that or anything like that. No additional charge. Warby Parker makes buying glasses online easy and risk-free. This is how they do it. They have uh, what's called the Home Try-On Program. It lets you order five pairs of glasses, as many as five different pairs that you think, yeah, maybe I'd look good in that. And they ship them to you, and you can try them on at home. You can show them to your friends. You can show them to your family. You get to keep those for five days and then send them back free using the prepaid return shipping label. And then when you place an order for your final pair of prescription glasses, uh, the one that you like the best out of those five, let's say, they get started on them right away. You'll have them within 10 business days. So it's internet shopping without the risk, which is very cool. Warby Parker, cool, vintage-inspired eyeglasses. They look really great. They start at $95, including the lenses. You can get them to call your eye doctor and get your prescription if you don't know what it is. So here's what you do. Go to warbyparker.com, W-A-R-B-Y-P-A-R-K-E-R, warbyparker.com slash Snell, my name, and select your five home try-on frames. Use that promo code. And once your glasses ship, you'll get your glasses within three days by using the offer code Snell. So again, Warby Parker, the rebels of quality eyewear on the internet. No risk to you. Try them at home, up to five pairs. Go to warbyparker.com slash Snell and check it out. And thanks to Warby Parker and their very cool eyeglasses for sponsoring The Incomparable. So Ender's Game, you know, Scott mentioned it. I, I just read it again. It's it's good. It's really good. I think the themes are interesting. I think it's not only is it, you know, it, the pace is good. It's set in an interesting um, future uh, time. There, There's some subtle things in it that I didn't really get when I was, you know, 19 or 20 when I read it that I got this time. I, he does a, he does some very good things in it in terms of setting the stage um, and giving you, you know, not telling you everything about the state the world's in, but you you very slowly realize how messed up this world is because it's been invaded a couple of times by aliens. Um, it's got a lot of interesting themes. Yeah, there's stuff in it that, that you know, knowing something about the author you look at, I highlighted um, a line that is... Um, 
talking about the battle school, there are a few girls. They don't often pass the test to get in. Too many centuries of evolution are working against them. Yes, that's right, ladies. You've evolved to not be in battle school. Sorry, it's evolution. <sighs> what can you do? Um, <sighs> there's a thing in there about all the all the uh, generals and the military forces being Jewish, which I thought was bizarre. Um, <laughs> but there's also some really beautiful stuff in there. I, you know, the fact that it ends... Uh, but the fact that it ends not with the rousing victory, but with the fact that it's all been a trick. And, sorry, spoiler horn for Ender's Game, which was released a million years ago. Um, <laughs> 1985. What I, re- what I really like about the way it ends is that it, it ends up being, you know, you make your main character um, having committed genocide. Xenocide. Or xenocide. An species, yes. yeah. And he... Um, and him dealing with that and like realizing that he can't stay around earth anymore. And I, I, you know, I thought it was, you know, fascinating in that way too. So, that, I mean, there's a lot in it and, and, and you could do an entire, you know, you could do an entire episode of the incomparable. You could do a, an entire book club at your house, invite some people over um, <laughs> and, and talk about the themes in the book. It, it I, I really do. It's too bad that it's gotten caught up in it in some ways because although I, I don't think it's perfect and I do think there might be things that people could object to in it um, thematically, um, it's really entertaining to read and it's there's a lot in it. So that's a shame because it, it is – I mean, he Card didn't just shoot himself in the foot. You know, he shot his, his catalog in the foot by making the claims that he made in the and made himself unpopular. And it's too bad because uh, I'm interested in seeing the movie and the book was really great. I had forgotten how good it was. So there's my there's my book report. That's the yeah, that is the rough part. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad. Even 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 that's that's sort of the thing. It's like even people who arguably have terrible views can produce a work of great beauty, which is you know that's the sad truth of Scott life. hit the nail on the head there. You know it, it is there are lots of awful people who've made amazing art, and I I feel like the one thing I understand is people being reluctant to compensate awful people who are still alive for the art mm. they made because they don't want to give them money even if the art is what it is they don't want to support their this awful person's life i i get that i guess but i don't know there's there's a terrific story by harlan ellison i i want speaking to say of wonderful the, speaking people. of yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um I, th- I want to say it's in the book strange wine and it's called hitler painted roses and it's about a man who um visits hell basically. And he does, I don't think he goes in, but the gates crack open a little bit. And at the end of the story, he just sees the, the most beautiful painting he's ever seen. <clears throat> and it's just, you know, roses all over this wall. And he looks and the, the artist is, you know, charred and horrific. And, and he, and, and turns and he realizes it's Adolf, Adolf Hitler. Hitler. Yeah. And it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen as the gates of hell close. And that's the end of the story. Hmm. And it was like, well, Harlan would know. <laughs> wow. Ow. I, I say that with a shelf of Harlan Ellison and yeah, like four feet away from me. Yep. This is why I never follow any of my favorite authors on Twitter. Don't do it. I, no, no, no. Do not do it. The only authors that I follow, I follow, I, I do follow Neil Gaiman and John Scalzi on Twitter. Um, eh. And I like, I, I feel like what they're doing on Twitter is so divorced from their actual work that I can do that. But if it was... I, but I, I even then I get some some trepidation about it. It's like, do I do I really want to spend a lot of time thinking about Neil Gaiman and 
and his wife and and all their different projects and how peculiar i think his wife is and the more i learn you know, about neil gaiman the the, the more the more i don't want to know the, the, the more warped the lens through which <laughs> yeah, i view his work i kind of don't want to know I, I i enjoy him when he's context free for me yeah i mean oh oh for the days when you would get a book and you would see a name on the cover and you would know nothing about who this person was and you yeah. just read the book and it was completely free of context yeah i didn't know he was an axe murderer <laughs> this is why i love it when tv showrunners leave twitter is is i i think it's best for i i think it's best for all involved when when creative professionals don't engage with their audience on that level because i worry that it creates the kind of feedback loop where the audience ends up contemptuous of 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 this person oh my god this this person whose work i idolized has feet of clay burn him he's a witch and i feel like it also um introduces a level of anxiety or or even second guessing into a creative professional's process where absolutely it changes their voice and it changes the quality of their output and so i don't want that i don't i don't feel like there should be any need to uh find out what neil gaiman and Amanda palmer are up to on any given sunday morning yeah. Well, it's like when, when Damon Lindelof left Twitter the other week. Smart of him. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was very smart of him. But yeah. he, he did it with a tweet that's unfinished, mm-hmm. right? He just stops in the middle of a word, kind of <laughs> like the Sopranos. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, my God, that's great. <laughs> but then I saw a whole bunch of people go, man, he couldn't even end that well. I was like, but oh. that was the <laughs> point. That was the point. Oh, my God. Well, yeah. this is the thing. Because you guys know I recap Sons of Anarchy for uh, Television Without Pity. Oh. Yeah, and this, is the, and this is the reason I don't follow Kurt Sutter on Twitter is I don't want to know. I, right. I I I absolutely do not feel a need to to find out what any of those cats associated with the show are thinking or how they're interacting with fans because on Twitter their job is to present a persona that sells their product, and I'd rather just look at the look at the show on its own merits instead. And, oh yeah, he he subtweeted another TV critic friend of mine the other week. Another um, one, in addition to Tom yeah. Vanderwerf, because he yeah. See this, and, and see, here's the thing, and I say this, and next thing you know, I'm going to be like, he's never ever said anything about a word that I've written, so I think he's just not aware of my existence, and that's like another <laughs> good, reason not good. to follow him is to make it's sure that like thing, I never, yeah. I never, I never crossed the Kurt Sutter radar. That's it's kind of sad in some ways because you know I, I was just I followed Damon Lindelof. You were just talking about it, and like he was actually hilarious for reasons that had nothing to do with his per- with yes. his work. Yeah. And like that's the sad thing is but like we it, never it saw is... his his awful reply stream, which was full of jerks. Oh, I mean, he re- that's Lost, not right? entirely true because actually he retweeted well, them that's true. quite a bit. <laughs> um, but you know, there is a thing about that. There is a you know an issue with that where it's just sort of like. What do you do? You know, how how can an author or a creator be on there and just be like talking about their mundane stuff, or does even that devalue it? So, and and Scott and I try very hard not to follow um, Shauna McGuire on Twitter because it might <laughs> it might humanize her, and then we wouldn't we would be sad about saying mean things about all oh. of the Mira Grant books. By the way, well, the, as we we're recording this, a new Mira Grant book was re- released uh, today. Parasite. Scott. So get yes. ready. I'm not reading that. And so the the other side of it is good people can make awful art. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, actually yeah. this is true. This is true yeah. too. So it's that's the that's the danger. It's the old uh, my friend wrote a book, do you you know, hey, do you want to read it? Sure. Oh my god, it's horrible. What do I say, right? Oh yeah, I, I had to stop doing that with plays. Interesting font. <laughs> well, you know, to, to to speak of the whole good good people make terrible art, bad people make good art. Um, in good in Good Omens, which is co-written by Neil Gaiman and uh, Terry Pratchett, 
they have a theory that most of the musicians end up in hell, except for like Handel and Hayden. And they're like, yeah, I have a super boring from a musical perspective. because <laughs> Good musicians are terrible people. Right. And I enjoyed that little that little throwaway. It's true. Although I, yeah, although I will, I, I will admit that I have an uncritical adoration for Terry Pratchett because he seems like a really interesting and, and oh, decent he's, human, human he's being. A, he's a delightful yeah. man. I know. I've seen him speak. Oh, I, I talked great. to him once. It was great. It's another episode that we haven't done, the Terry Pratchett episode. <laughs> well, just tell me how to host one. I've, the <laughs> I've only read a couple. Uh, well, we could do it. I've, I've only read a couple of his books. But yes, you can. Yeah. Again. Uh, I have read every Discworld book, even like the children's books. <laughs> Now I'd like to blow the sponsor trumpet for a moment. It's time for our second sponsor. And it's our returning sponsor that we love so much. It's HostGator. HostGator.com is a premier web hosting and domain name provider. If you're looking to start a website, HostGator can help you get started with monthly hosting plans. They've got one-click installs and tons of other features that make getting your site up and running easy. And that's the whole point here. If you're a more advanced user or a business, HostGator's Got you covered. There are reseller plans, VPS, dedicated servers, and this is my favorite part, HostGator guarantees 99.9% uptime, no matter your size or needs. If you like to use WordPress, there's a one-click install to get going with WordPress, and there's an optimized hosting platform. When you're hosting with HostGator, you get unlimited disk space, store all you like, and unlimited bandwidth which is really awesome they have free site builder tools that are super easy to use and if you find yourself needing any help there's 24 7 support to make sure everything's running smoothly so head on over to hostgator.com h-o-s-t-g-a-t-o-r like alligator hostgator.com to learn more when you decide to purchase don't forget to use the best coupon code on the internet it's snell sent me 10 s-n-e-l-l S-E-N-T-M-E-1-0. Snell sent me 10, all one word, and get 30% off everything. That's right, everything at HostGator.com. And thank you once again to the good people at HostGator for sponsoring The Incomparable. Let's talk about series and and authors who've let us down because, Lisa, you just said that you've read all the Discworld books. So obviously mm-hmm. you never felt the need to abandon Terry Pratchett during during that path. But, no. but I know I know that there are things that started out as something that you, that that you all loved, and mm-hmm. that it didn't end well, right? It's that, that initial rush of the relationship. It's everything's great, everything's doing really well, and this is true for for and we're mm-hmm. talking about books here, but it's really true of all art. And then and then after a while, you're like, oh, yeah, I don't this. No, it's not working no. for me anymore. We need Baby, to see other people. Baby, it's not you. It's, it's not it you. It's you. me. Wait, wait. It is you. Yeah. Um, oh, oh. I have. I have. I'm sure I've ranted about others, but the two that sprung to mind when I remembered I was doing this podcast today. Um, I'm a. I'm a huge Jart. I'm well, not huge, but a, a fairly avid John Varley fan. Um, and I don't know how many of you guys have read John Varley. Um, mm-hmm. No, but Armor. yeah, um, he's he's. He's known. He's written a couple different world-building efforts. The most interesting to me is is the Eight Worlds, where the idea is that humanity was run off by um, humanity was run off of planet Earth by a superior alien intelligence that regards them as viruses and turns the planet over to the cetaceans. And so, as a result, people have had to colonize um, the orbiting moons in the solar system. And a lot of the Eight World stuff he does talks about uh, they're, they're short stories that talk about the kind of scientific or social developments that let humanity keep on on being humanity. And then he's got a series which uh, which is called the Gaia Trilogy, which is a pretty tightly written series. Um, 
In 2003, he launched a new series about Martian exploration, um, the Thunder and Lightning series. And Red Thunder is a really good book. Um, it's a, it's, it's a breezy read, but it doesn't shy away from because um, he wrote it right around the time. It, it, it's a very post 9/11 book in a lot of ways, and and it's it's a fairly even-handed look at how how people might react um, 10, 15 years down the line. Um, how when you get focused on things like like fuel scarcity or, or political paranoia really big ambitious projects like space exploration are, are huge casualties and how that's ultimately detrimental to to who we are as a society we don't have these shared goals we don't have anything bigger to look at and so red lightning is a really good book rolling thunder which is the second oh wait uh, uh, red thunder is the first book it's great red lightning second book eh, it's it's not bad there's it's it's about mars declaring its independence from from earth so the third book rolling thunder is awful 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 <laughs> and i literally and by this point um the author has basically written what what it, it reads like a dirty old man's letter to the editor where I was an idiot savant who developed some form of hyperspace travel, but had the IQ of a 12-year-old the rest of the time. However, this six-foot-tall sex Amazon has decided that that I'm the one for her. And I was just so angered by how that turned out that, that I, I, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I, I had to put down the book halfway through. I'm, I'm finished. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. And now Varley's released like a, a one more novel, Slow Apocalypse, and I can't bring myself to purchase it. Because I, I I don't even want to know where it's going to go. <laughs> so this is like recommendations and and unrecommendations, right? It's like read this book, <laughs> then stop. <laughs> I would, I, yeah, I would, I would actually, if it's John Varley, anything he's written before two thousand three, I would, I would recommend without hesitation. And then stop. And then stop. Are you sure this isn't more like therapy? <laughs> <laughs> what for me or for him? <laughs> for, for I mean, for us. Yeah. <laughs> to show us where the bad author hurt your feelings. Yeah, how does that make you feel, Lisa? I podcasting is therapy. I I invented that. Yeah. I'm just saying that's the thing. Yeah. It's a real thing. Well, so so the thing that's that I've always found really great about John Varley is he's one of the few male hard sci-fi authors who writes women as protagonists and and not in an, ooh I'm so transgressive way. He just writes them as people like. Two of his strongest characters are the policewoman Anna Louise Bach, um, who's in a lot of the Eight Worlds short story, Eight Worlds short stories, and um, the heroine of the Gaia trilogy, Chiraco Chiraco Jones. Um, see, I want to make a coupling reference here, but now I feel yeah. bad. Because, uh, see, I was going to go with Chiraco Obama. I was. I was gonna <laughs> say, you, she, he writes women as people. Well, you know, in many ways, Lisa, they are. They are. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, I will admit when I first started reading him as a young woman in my teens and in my 20s, a lot of his short stories deal with things like, say, 12 and 14 year olds having sex with adults. And that's just a cultural thing. And I was like, ah, you know, head explodes because I'm 16 or 17. Um, But he also explores the notion that gender is fluid and you should have the option of, of changing your biology to reflect who you feel like you are inside. And it was a remarkably forward, forward looking um, treatment of gender in the 70s and 80s. And he had a lot of pretty caustic and interesting things to say about society building. Um, Rolling Thunder just made me sad because, again, it, it feels like, you know, after after years of, of sensitive and intelligent assessments of um, the way g- gender and society are, are, are a bizarre feedback loop, it turns into, oh, 
she's a she's a six foot Martian who hates to wear clothes. He's an mm. idiot savant who, imbe- who who invents hyperspace travel. Together they are yes. screwing their way through third of when the book. When these and- two get together, hold <laughs> yeah. on. Yeah, no, it was just and it was just it, it felt like a betrayal of everything that he had done in his earlier work, where he had had these very nuanced pic- pictures of the way of why people choose to have relationships. And had reduced instead his titular heroine to this 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 um, bouncy sex object. I, I I was really kind of offended by that. Well, at least the bad news is John Varley is a uh, an incredibly generous person who gives to charity and yeah. helps people out in the local soup kitchen. How yeah. and and is a wonderful person. How dare you say terrible things about? Him? No, wait, <laughs> wait a second. That's not that's a different podcast. Scott, do you have anybody who's wronged you? Well, authorially. <laughs> oh, all right. Uh, in that case, it is, it go is to page brief. ten. <laughs> all right, I, I have to redo a lot of what Dan, I was about to say. I know the first five pages are just Dan over and over. Again. <laughs> That's <laughs> not right. creepy at all. Uh, well, I think that there is a, a kind of a classic one that I know I am not the only person who thinks that uh, Frank Herbert, oh uh, yes, oh yeah, has written a masterpiece <laughs> in Dune, and whatever you do. Read nothing else by him, uh, or else you will be very sad. I thought, as my my recollection is that the second Dune book is okay. That's where I stopped, and <laughs> and then I tried to read the third one, and I'm I guess technically I'm still trying in that I never <laughs> finished it. It's a book ever really. Don't give up the dream, I, no. Jason. I I got about halfway through God Emperor of Dune, which is the fourth one. And, you know, after about 100 pages from the point of view of what's-his-name turned into a sandworm, I just went, no, no. I'm done. I, God, no. Well, let's be clear, too. Dune, although a classic, the first, what, 250 pages, 300 pages is pretty pretty hard rowing, Oh God, too, yeah. right? Before it really – it starts to pick up after it's, that, though. Really, it starts true. to move after three, page 300. But don't – yeah, don't – Stick it there. <laughs> And the other one that I think I've talked about before is uh, The Wheel of Time. Oh, see, you stole mine. Oh. I was going to do it. Oh. So I know that people have oh, many I issues tried. with it. I oh could not God, even I read tried. the first book. I got like 150 pages in, and some kid was walking through a village the entire time. And <laughs> I was like, I don't care. And I stopped reading. I read seven of them. And that Ooh. was like up to the point where they were like... I think I read them when I was like 15 or 16 or something. And, you know, that was the most recent one that had come out was the seventh one. I actually owned the eighth one. It was a Christmas gift. Never read it. And then, what, there were like 13, 14 in total? I mean, they got taken over by uh, Brandon Sanderson after Robert Jordan passed hostile away. Takeover. Yeah. <laughs> well, not so hostile. The Robert Jordan thing, for me, part of it was just the uh, the inertia of it. Like, I got to the... I finished the seventh one. The eighth one came out like years later. And it was that moment of, oh, my God, I will have to reread those first seven books to remember what the hell happened. No, (laughs) it wasn't that good. (laughs) I think I can sort of piece together where this whole uh, series was going. So, yeah, that was that was one of mine for sure. Um, The other one I had was uh, Charles Strauss, actually. Uh, I read the first book of his uh, Merchant Princes series, which Mm -hmm. is actually kind of entertaining. Um, you know, it has to deal with like parallel universes and uh, people who can jump between these parallel universes. And then there's one that's more like medieval and one that's more colonial. And like the first book was pretty good. And it kind of it ended where he like killed a character who I thought was like one of the more sympathetic characters, which, you know, sometimes you can get away with. And then I realized reading the next few books, like, 
God, I kind of hate everybody else in these books. <laughs> and then it just kind of goes off the rails, and like there's like they're finding more parallel universes. And I'm like, all right, you needed to be like wrapping this up, not quite like expanding the scope. So I, unfortunately, I've read I've read some stuff I've enjoyed by him, but like that series just to me just took a sharp left turn into Crazy Town. Well, that's not the Crazy Town cutoff. You have to make a hard left, otherwise if you, you go, go straight. You go off a cliff. <laughs> Geography of Crazy Town. It's confusing because you crazy. know it's Crazy Town. It's yeah. Crazy Town. Forget it, Jake. It's crazy. Hey, David, do you have uh, any examples of uh, those who series or, or authors who've wronged you? Well, a, a couple. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of those books like Dune and and Wheel of Time and uh, and Game of Thrones. I I Ooh, picked up and tried. Oh, yeah, I know. I wow, know. That's burn. Harris. Take that, George R. R. Martin. I wasn't, you know, invested in them, so I was sort of like, well, all right, they're just not for me. Um, but then then there are some things where. It's like, what, what's the old Dorothy Parker line? This is not a book to be tossed aside lightly. It should be thrown with great force. Yes. Um, that would be God Emperor of Dune. Um, but the the authors who've disappointed me, um, and this might be heresy too, uh, Anne McCaffrey. Wow. Oh! oh! Good boy choice. Yeah, I, I, you know, I love the first three Pern novels, mm. and I, you know, the Harper Hall books were, you know, all right. I didn't really, you know, but I read them. But they're for little and, kids compared yeah, to the, the direct, yeah. yeah. I started and, with those. And they just mm-hmm, yeah, kept so going I. and going, you know, and I'm reading Oh, it's when they did discover the AI, and he has them invent, uh, you know, oh, this is silicon glass, and then he has them reinvent spacesuits and, and take the yep. dragons into space. Ah. Oh! <laughs> I thought that was awesome. No. <laughs> it, it sounds awesome. I, that was the one. I think that's the last one that for me. It's when like, he has is, them like generate. Here's how you engineer a microphage. And wait, what? You know, <laughs> this is a world with dragons, and then he has. The, you know, here's how you manufacture insulated spacesuits for dragons. And wait, wait. Yeah, and, and I just kind of went. I, I kind of ah. dug that, but then again, I read it at like 15 or something, right. and I was like, I got to where, I think it was, for me, again, it was really when she started like offing characters, mm-hmm. that I, and like focusing on characters that I didn't care about, and really, yeah. the last few, sadly, the last few that she wrote, which I think were mainly written by her son, I believe. Oh, um, I tried to read one by her bad. son, and uh, oh, they're just yeah. they're just really boring. Oh. Like it's you're yeah. like okay, it's yep. the same four characters. I, it's, in the, exactly, well, it's same plots. It's the same plots. Yeah, yeah. And it's wish yeah. fulfillment fiction, well, which is the worst type of fiction. Um, it's I I remember when Morita Dragon Lady of Pern came out, yeah. and, oh! and and that that was such a big thing because it had been so many years since she put out a Pern novel, right? Yes, and yes. so it was like this big event, right? And so yeah, the the more they just went on, I was like, oh. Oh, well, I still love the first three. Well, that's good. Oh, yeah. That, I oh, mean, yeah. factors involved here. I mean, you mentioned it, the age, too. Some of this is you discover yeah. something as a kid and you love it. And and it, it literally is. It's not you. It's me. It's like I grew up and you're, the flaws of these this series were revealed because I was no longer that impressionable, starry-eyed 13-year-old who was reading them. Or, <laughs> you know... And, and so that's going on, and then simultaneously, you know, you're not no longer reading the first or second book in the series that made it famous. You're reading book seven, and things may be kind of they're 
they're padding it out because this series has become profitable, and yeah. and so that's working against it too. So it, I mean, that I suppose that really happens all the time. I can remember being a teenager and picking up the Meloriad, which were the David Edding books that followed oh, Edding's dude. books oh, that yeah. followed the Belgariad, and I remember reading through the Meloriad in the first one and being like, "There's a lot of repetitious phrases, and and you know the, the characterizations <laughs> kind of fly. Like 15, I can figure this out." So. I under well, I understand if you create this fictitious world, I understand that you know you've, you've built this world and you're invested in it, and maybe you're writing them for you um, and and for your own personal gratification as much as you are for the money they bring in. Um, uh, for example, one of my favorite series stopped after three books. It's written by Barry Barry Huhart or Hughart. It's it's H U G H H A R T, and um, he starts the first one I think is called the bridge of birds and there's it's they're set in an alternate um alternate medieval china for I'm sure medieval china isn't the right Mm -hmm. word but it's it's basically during one of the imperial dynasties and um it's about an ancient sage and his his young dumb and and, an incredibly compassionate companion and how they outwit magic and tricksters and dragons and um barry since I can't pronounce his last name, stopped writing after <laughs> stopped writing after book three because, as he explained to the press, it wasn't remunerative. I wasn't selling enough of these to justify the time and, and research I was putting into them. So uh, screw you! I sell. I, I'm now a bookseller because it makes ah. me more money than 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 when I was an author. You know, my kids love the um, Ricky Ricotta series by Dave Pilkey. And th- uh, that's mm-hmm. that's a book for every planet in the solar system, and and in the the i think jupiter book or the saturn book it promises what the next book is going to be and what happened is that captain underpants which dave pilkey also does uh became a wild hit and 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 then for years what they would say and and this would happen to my wife at the library they'd be like where's the next ricky ricotta book and we did all the research too because it said there was another one it said the neptune book it's coming and and it turns out <laughs> the, the sad answer that you don't want to tell a child who wants to know where the next ricky ricotta book that they were promised is is captain underpants proved to be far more profitable and therefore <laughs> these books will not be written and it turns out they actually will they're going back in print with a new illustrator uh, and that just came out a month ago but it was definitely one of those things where the commerce came, and it was like I have I have a more popular series over there. So uh, screw you guys, I'm going over there. <laughs> All right, that's sad. But you know, I can see I can see where it's really nice to. I mean, in a way, I really like the J.K. Rowling. The way I love the way what? she approached Harry Potter, and that she spent five years just planning her world. She wrote her seven books. Mm. She's knocked off like a few, you know mythical beasts or whatever as as you know supporting projects but she's not coming back with you know harry potter and the increasingly gnarly lawn project or 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 whatever it would be she harry just... potter and the vagaries of middle age yes yeah no she, she's 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 like <laughs> i'm gonna done. happen Boom. i'm done and i hope well, it doesn't happen but i like that she wa- and and it helps that she's made like frillions well, I, was, so I was gonna she, say she doesn't need any more money so she can but i like that she had a beginning and an ending because i think sometimes yes. for authors they've invested so much time and energy um it's hard to let go and say goodbye harry potter is another one that i stopped reading uh, oh yeah i i did yes. stop after the fourth she one. got she got better and then she got a little more self-indulgent but i mm-hmm. i enjoyed them through the i like them all yeah yeah. yeah, we've had yeah. that podcast. <laughs> we have had that one. That's, people can look back in the archive for that one. The the other heresy that I have, uh, perhaps, is uh, speaking of not knowing when to let go. Mm-hmm. Douglas Adams. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, I just yeah. I got yeah. halfway through Life, the Universe, and everything, and I was like, you know, I this the first one was fun, the radio show was fun, the BBC show was fun, 
I'm good. I don't need any more. And I kept trying to read the others. You know, I'd be like, mm. all right, I'll try this one. And even even the Ewan Culfer one that, that just came out was like, eh, I like the first no. three. I like the classic trilogy. I thought the fourth one was a disappointment until the until the very last, I think next to last chapter was actually interesting. And then, you know, I would I would actually argue, I think, that Douglas Adams, after whatever, 1984 or 1986 or something, didn't do anything. Because I know there are people who defend those Dirk Gently books. I thought they were terrible. And I, plus, yeah. worse, they were worse than terrible. They were actually just him rifling through his old Doctor Who scripts for ideas mm-hmm. and then putting them into novel form. So anybody who had seen or read about Shada or, or City of Death or any of those old Doctor Who stories... Um, he was just lifting those stories that he wrote and using them because he seemed to have no new ideas. So as as tragic as it was that he died so young, um, honestly, I, I, at that point, uh, he, he had it had been a while since he'd written something that I thought was really great. He 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 did a lot of other things that interested him, and he wrote the story about his book about uh, endangered animals and things like that, which I think had much more of his interest. And then Hitchhikers was just sort of. And even Dirk Gently was sort of, uh, you know, yeah. paycheck fodder for him. Yeah, but yeah. I've got, I've got, a, I've got a few. When we were talking about uh, childhood authors, especially, I read a lot of Piers Anthony. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, Piers Anthony. <laughs> yeah. Autobiography of a Space Tyrant. The Split Infinity Blue Adept Juxtaposition trilogy is actually pretty good in in that it's this bizarre sci-fi fantasy thing. And if you're a teenager and you love sci-fi and fantasy, it kind of sticks it all together. And there's a game metaphor, like Ender's Game kind of, it, 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 or Hunger Games. It's it's sort of reminiscent of that. Uh, but so that as a as a standalone work, you know, that's fine. But here's the thing. So he did uh, the Xanth books, which are still being published. I know. And, and if you go back, Spell yeah. for Chameleon, my, I read a bunch of these. My wife read a bunch of these. First off, if you go back, what you discover is that, uh, you know, uh, he's, he's a dirty old man. Even when he was younger, oh my he was a really God, dirty old yes. man. And, and Spell yes. for Chameleon's got a lot of questionable things in it, and the Xanth books do in general. But so, Yeah, the, the, the ability to consent during sex. Oh, my God. But the bio of the Sa- a Space Tyrant series, which was also marketed, I think, you know, because he was an adolescent... Uh, themed writer in so many ways he th- th- that book is so dirty in so in so many wrong <laughs> awful awful it's, ways it's not even like the kind of thing where you pass it around the back of the classroom with your friends and oh check out page whatever like we did with you know um forever it was the kind of thing where as you're reading about rape and incest and so yeah. on and so forth you're like yeah but but Zanf? but but Zanf? but clinical section Sexual details involving people of inappropriate ages. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. just and there's there's a lot of it's 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 really horrifying. And I don't know if this was supposed to be a big statement. Oh, you know, terrible things happen when when violence and yeah. poverty and depredation. But I, I never got that was, sense. It, I, no, it, I was going to say if it was supposed to be his statement. He's awful. Um, <laughs> it was it was the kind of thing where where even because I read that series in like middle school and I can remember oh, like yeah. feeling violated by it just oh. just kind of confused by what I had read and and trying to figure out like how much of it was my own instincts saying no no this is wrong and and, and how much of it was me being in and over my head it, you know it's I'm a big believer that you shouldn't supervise too much of kids read because this is how they they form them that their senses of self and their way of interacting with the world but. Man, oh man, that that was something where it was a big fat. On the positive side, oh, at a yeah. at a relatively young age, Lisa, we learned about various sexual positions that can be done in zero g. So <laughs> that, thanks. That, that could be never useful. helped me on a physics Thanks, final. 
Piers Anthony. <laughs> and, and I also bring up Piers Anthony because in terms of series that disappointed you, um, On a Pale Horse is actually a really good book about yeah. death. And mm-hmm. then he proceeded to write that same book like seven more times. Like, I'm not kidding. <laughs> the same book. He would change the characters. Yeah. And they, it was almost Rashomon-like, I guess, in the sense it was like the same events from another perspective. But it was, no, it was just the same. I, hey, that book was successful. I'll write it again seven times. And 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 so he just, he he's on my list because it's like, I appreciated yeah. him when I was younger. That's part of it. But he also squeezed as much out of a series as he could and continues to do so with Xanth. And in hindsight, uh, it, it wasn't that great, but, he, you know, all the inappropriate stuff that's in there and, and it's only, I think gotten worse. And yeah, so he's on my list. Um, I wanted to mention two others, uh, Greg bear, uh, who blood uh, music, blood mm-hmm. music, a great, um, novella turned into a, an okay novel. Um, mm. he wrote, a uh, a couple of books, Darwin's radio and Darwin's children, I think is the second one. And I have not had much more visceral reaction to a book as to Dar- the sequel to Darwin's Radio. Darwin's Radio wasn't great. Uh, Darwin's Children, um, I, I like if if it had been a paper book, I would have thrown it across the room. But it was on my Kindle, <laughs> and oh. I value my Kindle, so I didn't. But I, delete that, with prejudice. Delete with prejudice. You swiped. Well, I, I guess what I'd say is, you know, people and people can enjoy what they like, but for a hard sci-fi writer to suddenly turn on a dime and start talking about, like, preaching about um, indefinable higher power messages from God in his characters' heads, it was like, oh, no. yeah, okay, goodbye. Not why I no, not why I read your book. What what? Okay, you know, it was like, whoa, okay, whatever path you're on now, good for you. Not what I signed up for when I read your books. So um, I felt be- there's some author betrayal there, and I, 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 he's not, he's on my list. I'm not going to read anything more by him. And I want to mention Robert Sawyer, who is a, 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 a somewhat critically praised, but um, I think actually kind of a mediocre writer. Um, he's okay. His, his ideas are interesting, but he did flash forward and. Uh, oh, I read and, that. And the Neanderthal Parallax is what I wanted to talk about. Hominids is a mm-hmm. book that got a, uh, some discussion and is interesting. It's about a parallel universe where Neanderthals are uh, won the uh, sort of evolutionary battle, and uh, a bridge is created between the humans and the and the, the Neanderthal world, and and it's sort of interesting. And yet, um, th- those books. Then I read the sequel. Mm, no, so I just a little warning there. Don't don't read more. No more Robert Sawyer. Neanderthal parallax books because I thought that they were really awful uh, and the first one was passable so I think that turning novellas into novels can be problematic period yeah blood um, music is a great example of that where that's yeah. a fantastic novella Nancy Cress's beggars in Spain is another because mm. it was a great um it was a great novella which is basically about what happens when you um engineer people who don't need to sleep Mm. And and how are they treated by the rest of society, and how do they react and respond in return? Because they 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 they're essentially immortal because the 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 bio the body chemistry ticks that make them not need sleep also happen to refresh and rejuvenate their cells, and so they're never ever going to age, and they get resentful of society and so on and so forth. And it was a great novella, and she turned it to a novel, which I thought was kind of dragging in places, and then she turned it into a trilogy. Yeah. Um, and Ooh. I should say this, I really enjoy Nancy Cress as a sci-fi writer, and I think she's one of the few that actually um, tackles issues of, of class and uh, intellectual and social mobility. Um, 
as opposed to automatically hand-waving with, and after the war, there was prosperity, and now we all have opportunity because it's Star Trek. Um, she doesn't do that. She talks about, you know, the disruption that science or technology can bring about and how some people get left behind and some people don't. And she does it in a really engaging and funny way. And I love her authorial voice, but I really wish, like, she had just stopped and been like, okay, I had a novella called uh, Beggars in Spain. It was pretty awesome. It got me on the radar. I'm going to move on to something else now. Because <laughs> I, I made the mistake of reading um, the, 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 the last two because I have this this perverse completist instinct where if there's a series, I, I always try to read all the way through to see how it's going to work. And by the third one, I'm all, oh, no. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. <laughs> and and I ended up kind of you know doing the, the, the readerly equivalent of putting like the hands over the eyes while watching the horror film where I'm just kind of skimming through and, and ooh, I don't like that character. I'm skipping this paragraph. <laughs> the, the true test, I, I think, of a lot of artists who have um, one big success is always – you know, the question is always, can they repeat it? But one of those questions is, are they going to try to repeat what got them there? Or are they, they going to do something new and say, well, you like that? Why don't you try this? And, and you know, history is littered with the, you know, me- mediocre follow-ups. And some of those are are because they didn't do what they did before. And some of those are because they tried to do exactly what they did before and they didn't show it. And you see it with mm-hmm. writers where it's like, I'm just going to make this into a series. And so I, I get why series exist <laughs> because it's, you know, once you get somebody, you build that audience and you keep them on the hook. But on another level, um, you know, it ends up sometimes just turning into a cash grab. Where it's like, you know, I, I, what do I do with this great audience who like this book? Well, I guess I'll just write another book and they'll give me more money, right? So do you have a story to tell? No, but yeah. I remember back in the 80s when uh, White Gold Wielder by Stephen R. Donaldson came out. Oh, God. Wow. There's, oh, there's uh, a book, I, there's a series <laughs> I gave up on. I like that all of us were, ah. <laughs> It was what, the third book of the second trilogy of the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant or whatever it was. And so, so my dad got it. And I was curious because he had the other five. And, oh. you know, so, so I start picking up the first one and he sees me reading it one afternoon and he just comes over and goes, don't do it. Goes, what do you mean? You're, you're reading the sixth one? He goes, yes, I have to know, but don't do it. Life is too short. <laughs> I was like, okay, It's a then. trap. Right That's just, I mean, that book, I, I read the first book in that series and needless to say, just because of stuff that <laughs> happened in that first book. I yeah. never went on from there because I was like, this is just awful. Like, it's just, it's just, uh, it's painful. It's painful to read. No, because now, to be honest, I'm thinking of the authors who haven't done it yet. And I'm all, please don't do it. Yeah, don't that's do true. It. There's a, there, there, there are those. I mean, that's 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 the good thing is, is, is you've got the writers out there that you can count on. But this is true of anything. I was thinking, you know, I, I have the same uh, feeling about like musical artists where they have a new album that comes out and there's always that moment of like, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy the next one. I'll buy this album if I like the last one. But if the last one I didn't like, then there's that moment of like, am I going to give you another chance or am I going to just get off the train now? And that and that happens, you know, that happens all the time too. Or a TV series where you're like, oh, that's the last episode of that I'm going to watch. Or, you know, I don't like this writer anymore. I'm not going to follow his uh, his stuff anymore. It's 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 natural. This is one of the ways that you select it. But it's funny when that, that starts with love and then, and then it, it, it sort of, 
that that relationship falls apart. Can we recommend authors who have not done this? Who's who who we've been impressed with how they did their series or close them out? In the in the spirit of the flop house, which always has a thing at the end to prove <laughs> that they're not just sad bastards who hate everything. Let's mm-hmm. do that. <laughs> think, writers who have not wronged us and series that 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 have delivered. Sure, Lisa, go mm. ahead. I can okay, I, I I have I have two. Um, one, this may be controversial, maybe not. William Gibson. Because he tends to switch gears every few books and uh, move off into different directions, and I like that. Yep. I like that his own curiosity keeps him really fresh and lively. And if you think that he wrote Neuromancer and then he went away, please read Pattern Recognition because it's great. Oh my gosh, um, there's there's a lot. I I love the whole trilogy. That um, actually, I like the Bridge trilogy that's that's centered around the the Bay Bridge. Um, but the other author I'm going to bring up is one that doesn't get talked about a lot, but should, and it's Julian May. Who ah, um, yes. she did two series that I, I think are worth talking about. The first is the saga of Pleiocene Exile, which uh, hinges on the premise that people who hate modern who hate modernity hop into a uh, time wormhole and end up back on planet Earth during a Pleiocene times, where in theory they can get back to the land. What they don't realize is they're going back there and being enslaved by a race of telepathic aliens. And um, the f- five books in the series. Um, is it four or five? I can't remember. Um, I think it's... Um, oh, it's four. The four books in the series uh, center on, on how does humanity get out of this pickle? And and they do. And she and, and boom, she ends it. But then um, a little bit later, she launched a second series called the Galactic Milieu series, which has um, five books. And it's very loosely tied to the Pleiocene Exile, as in it's flung like 3,000, 4,000 years in the future. And it's this big hork in space opera. And she could have spun it out for 20 books because there's like four different family dynasties that get into it and like eight different alien races and all these all these wars and skirmishes that go on. But, you know, it was in and out. Nobody gets hurt in five books. And I admired her restraint for, for taking something as spready and epic as the story that she told and picking three characters and saying, boom, I'm done. These are the three I'm focusing on. I have figured out what happens to them. You can wonder about everybody else on your own time. So I would urge people to read Julian May. I, we don't hear a lot about her, but she um, she cranked out a lot of really good work in the 70s and 80s, and, and I mm. think people should read him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there I I could uh, I could name a bunch. I just wrote I wrote a bunch down. We should say the um, I think Dan would agree with me here. The Vorkosigan series. Ah, uh, yeah, you took one. That was one of the ones I was mm-hmm. going to say. Yeah, I agree. It's you know it's one of those things where you look at it and you're like, wow. She wrote, you know, she's written over a dozen like books and fifteen books in that all, series. <laughs> they're all pretty good. I mean, there are some that are not as good as others, but like, you're probably gonna read them all once you start reading them. And the, and the most recent one by Lois McMaster Bujold. It, the most recent one is actually one of. It's good. It's like it's yeah, not, it's really it's good. Not, if you drew a chart of quality, it would not like have the fall off. There were some. There were some. Ethan of Athos was early on in that. This kind of crappy. But, she, she goes into things that I don't care about as much. Like yeah. she she finds fascinating stories in things that I don't find as fascinating. But then she'll you know every then she'll pop up with like a memory or something like that, and it's like. This is amazing. Yeah, yeah. So. That's a good series. I, I was not let down by that, which is why I read 15 freaking books in like two months of all <laughs> just that whole series. That, that was That's a series that hasn't let me down. Um, of course, Mira Grant's Newsflash trilogy, <laughs> Scott, right? <That's, laughs> well, you know, um, the hits just keep coming. Yeah. The, um, 
I'd say I'd say Neil Stevenson, although his work is yeah, it's um, not to be series, but it, it, it's ugh. not a series. But but I I um I continue eh, the Baroque cycle dragged for me. I, but. I, I I continue to enjoy his work. Uh, I I stopped reading the Baroque cycle. I like the do. Baroque cycle. Yeah, Baroque cycle. That's you know that's th- if that's a three thousand page novel essentially. That's a lot of whole there's lot of an investment there. But like I found that it really took me like ha- halfway through the first book to be like, all right. I'm into this, which I realize is a lot to get into. Like, it's like 500 pages, but it like baroque I, me. Yeah, yeah. If it ain't baroque, uh, and Scott's not reading it. I wanted to it mention John Barnes um, has a series that's the. Uh, uh, it started with a what a million open doors. I've plugged oh. it before. They're, oh yes, yes, good. yes! You gave me the first few books of that right. series. Right, so that's the third right. one is very depressing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, the third one is really depressing, and then and then the. The fourth one is actually pretty good and has a kind of breathtaking, also depressing chapter in it. That's the single chapter that I still think about that blows me away. But that, so those those are that's an interesting series <laughs> that has been you know slow to come out and he could stop at any time. It's not like he leaves you hanging, but then he goes back into that universe. I like that. Uh, John Barnes also wrote an awful book called The Duke of Uranium. Don't read that. Don't read that. No, no. <laughs> No, uh, Jack McDevitt, who I've I've extolled the virtues of before, it writes light, fun sci-fi adventure novels in two different series: the Alex Benedict series, which is about a sort of like Indiana Jones in space, and the Priscilla Hutchins uh, Hutch series, where she's a space pilot. And there's always adventure, and people eat sandwiches. I'm not kidding; people always eat sandwiches in those books. And there's and there's always everything Sold. looks fine, and then somebody's got a gun, and there's a surprise, and there's some sabotage, and it's adventure-y, But you know there all kind of they all are enjoyable and i feel like they've never you know they've never kind of tailed off in in quality they're all just sort of pleasant and i always pick them up when he's got a new one and then i want to mention john scalzi who has gone back to the old man's war universe time and again now he's sort of what five books in that series now but i think they're all they're all good and so you know i i i I credit him for that because that was a case where old man's war was a hit and he's like, all right, I got to do more of this. And (laughs) I think he did a pretty creditable job with those books and they're all different in a way, which is also kind of fun. So that's my list. I'll throw out two YA series, which I liked. Um, uh, I mean, the kind of classics, but uh, Susan Cooper's Dark is Rising sequence, which (laughs) I enjoyed all of. I, we talked about that recently. I'm reading Um, the Dark is Rising right now, I think. I, I quite like that's that's my favorite of the series, but I think the whole series is pretty that's good. My and airplane simil- book. Similarly, myth- mythologically, Lloyd Alexander's Perdane Chronicles, which mm. I also have very fond spots of for. Uh, Lisa mentioned Terry Pratchett, who mm-hmm. is amazing, and just one of those things where he's, despite having a series in that all his you know or many many of his books are contained in the disc world, um, they go off in totally random directions. And he kind of manages, you know, I think when I started reading him, it was because I liked Douglas Adams. But I think he is even better at that than Douglas Adams is in terms of... You can actually argue that Discworld is kind of five series in one consensual universe. Because there's the Wizards, there's the Witches, there's the Watch, there's... There's there's standalone books. There's all the standalone books, too. I mean, like moving pictures and I mean, all these things are... Oh, my God, I love pyramids. Well, just totally... I mean, he'll just think of this like clever idea. And amazingly, he's been writing these books for, you know, 30 years and they're still hilarious. Like, I mean, I I pick up new ones and I'm like still laughing out loud at them, which is amazing to me after that many years. So Mm -hmm. kudos to him. He's a great writer. And then the other one, which I think I've mentioned on the show before, is uh, 
Mike Carey's Felix Caster series, which is a five book paranormal sort of noir set in London, which I really love. And I think those are all those are all great. You know, I'll, I'll second the Julian May and the Terry Pratchett because, yes, dear God, yes. Um, but I also love the John, John D. McDonald's Travis McGee series, which huh. is interesting because he started out as a kind of a pulp crime writer. And the first couple of books are, you know, he banged the first four out in one year. You know, they're very short, very fast. And then then the series evolves and they're just they're all really, you know, good stories, but just beautiful writing, all first person. Um, and he really like Carl Hyacin, you, you look at his books and, you know, talk about crime in Florida and environmental issues and all. And, and he'd say point blank, it's because of John D. McDonald. Um, so those are beautiful. But I also really enjoy uh, Donald Westlake and his oh, yeah. uh, both both as Donald Westlake doing the Dortmunder novels, but also Richard Stark as uh, doing the Parker novels, because um, Dortmunder actually started when a Parker novel didn't work and he realized it was just too funny. And suddenly he just went, eh, I'll change the names. And that was it. And so then he had like this really dark, gritty uh, caper character and then this bumbling group of, of thieves and both series just again beautiful writing in them and no, i mean just no drop off to the end so scott do you have anything nice to say <laughs> very very rarely do i have anything nice to say uh i will mention uh someone who we've spoken about on the podcast before nk jameson's uh the inheritance trilogy oh yeah uh i thought that was uh fantastic and i've read the killing moon which is the start of another series but i haven't read the second one so i don't know it could be disappointing i could be setting myself up for disappointment um and I'll once again plug uh, K.J. Parker, who I plug all the time, uh, with uh, the Engineer trilogy, which I think is an amazing piece of writing that I think probably most people won't like. But yeah. it is it is very good, and I enjoyed it very much. And you can hear Scott talk more about it on the K.J. Parker cast, which is his... No. That's right. Check me out. Yes, it's a very quiet podcast. It is. It's just Scott. It's me reading the books. I just turn the radio. Yep, you hear the page. Click, hear him clicking the Kindle yeah, button. I read those. Uh, I actually bought them on, on paper. Yeah. Oh, decadent. Like a That's savage. True. Wow. That's true. <laughs> like a cave. Well, not a caveman. Like a post Gutenberg savage. That's true. And then I, but I read them by the light of many Kindles lined up. Okay, so. good, good. You use the Kindles for lighting. Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, We talked a little bit about artists and art. We talked a little bit about uh, authors and book series that wronged us in some way. And then we wrapped it up with a little positivity. Thanks to Lisa for suggesting we end on a positive note. I appreciate that. Um, And so now we've come to the end. So um, I'd like to thank my guests for for joining me in this uh, slightly oddball episode of our book club. But I, I really enjoyed it. Dan Morin, thank you very much for being here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ah, always a pleasure you say now you're not cursing my name like the last time i mean internally okay good that's right it's on the inside david lore thank you so much for being back on the show always a pleasure he said cursing internally (laughs) hey wait a second (laughs) lisa schmeiser thank you again for coming on again it was a lot of fun thank you yeah that was great boy you've got a lot of books in your in your memory bank (laughs) i was amazed i was blown away (laughs) 
Thank you. Scott McNulty doesn't remember anything is really what I'm saying here. Scott, oh, Scott, thanks for being here. I I don't know what you said, but I do often think about what my mother always told me when I was growing up. Scott, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. Uh, Well, uh, get get used to disappointment. That's right. Uh, Life is pain. Anyway... This is not the Princess Bride podcast, either. Uh, so thanks to everybody out there for listening. We hope we haven't been a disappointment to you in this episode. And if we were, there's always the next episode. So yes. come on back and try us again. Don't give up on us. If, di- if we've we disappointed change. you, just keep listening. We can, we'll can. we turn it around. It's going to happen. Things are, things are looking up. <laughs> we're not going to hold on past our expiration no, date. No, definitely just not. Just wait definitely for the Piers Anthony episode, and you'll be fine. We are solid. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Can you imagine the Piers Anthony <laughs> And on that note, I say to you, good night. Good night, good fair night. listener. Good night. <laughs>Just a reminder, next episode, we're going to watch three classic movies from 1952. Well, they're movies from 1952. High Noon, starring Gary Cooper. The Greatest Show on Earth, starring Charlton Heston, Jimmy Stewart, a cast of thousands, directed by Cecil B. DeMille. It's it's a movie. And Singing in the Rain with Gene Kelly. So watch those movies, or at least watch High Noon and Singing in the Rain. And join us for our next episode where we'll talk about old movies with Philip Michaels. Thanks for listening.